Welcome to Truth Triumphant Radio. I'm your host, Cody Mori, and it's been another crazy week out there, hasn't it? Um, today I wanted to talk about the lost doctrines of Daniel. The lost doctrines of Daniel. And some of you who might be familiar with the book of Daniel might be thinking to yourself, well, there's a, there's a lot of lost doctrines of Daniel. Well, specifically, I want to talk about the, the doctrines that Daniel identifies that would be lost. Those are the lost doctrines that I'm uh, particularly focusing in on. And recently I've been studying a lot on Daniel chapter 11 and particularly the king of the north and the king of the south and spiritual kingdoms because you kind of see those things going on. And, and one of the interesting things I found um, was that in the history of the king of the north and the king of the south, which as you read through Daniel 11, it's, it starts as a, a literal fulfillment between the king of the north and a king of the south. It, there's a, a literal king of the north and king of the south. It's, it's uh, the Seleucid Empire, basically after the Greek Empire had dissolved into its, its four parts uh, that eventually formed the four uh, divisions of the empire. There were two main divisions that became the most powerful and that was Egypt and Babylon really um, the area the remnants of the Persian Empire and the remnants of Egypt so those two and they they fought it out for centuries and centuries and one of the things I found interesting is that the king of the north and the king of the south both of them persecuted God's people. Both of them slaughtered God's people uh, in the thousands, um, tens of thousands. And Israel, or God's chosen people, all, always suffered. Now, as you go through Daniel chapter 11, it begins to broaden up. And you, you begin to see that you're, you're looking at a spiritual king of the north and a spiritual king of the south, which we've talked about on the show already. The spiritual king of the south is atheism, communism, basically the left, really. I mean, it's a, if you want to look at it in like the political scheme that we have here in the United States, it would be the absolute far left, radical left. Okay, the, the communists, the socialists, the, the evolutionary theory and all that stuff that goes with it. And then the king of the north... It's a both are spiritual kingdoms. They're throughout the entire world. There are people in every walk of life in every country that hold to the doctrines of communism, some by force, some uh, willingly. And then you have the king of the north, which is Rome, which is a spiritual, um, basically false religion, uh, false religion headed by Rome. You see this going on today with the World Council of Churches. And things like that. Now, either side could win. This is the point I'm making. When you look at the history of the literal king of the north and the literal king of the south, they, when they duked it out, they, they, Israel kept changing hands. It would, it would be part of the Seleucid Empire, then be part of the Ptolemaic Empire, then be a part of the Seleucid Empire. In other words, it'd be part of uh, the remnants of the Persian Empire, and then it'd be part of Egypt again, and, and, and it would it would change hands multiple times, and each side would persecute them 
So it doesn't really matter who wins. You know, I, in, again, in today's language, the king of the north, you could see as far, far right ultra-conservatism. Okay? It wouldn't really matter who wins because who's going to suffer in the end? God's people. doesn't matter which side wins. What mat, what what's going now what we're told it is important to understand what we're told we are told in the scriptures that it's the king of the north and not the king of the south that ends up winning so the king of the south pushes at the king of the north but the king of the north comes back like a whirlwind so and I wanted to talk about well before we go into these lost doctrines. I wanted to actually talk about something I found very interesting as I've been studying this. This is from a book entitled "Vision by the Hidekel" by Robert D. Brinsmead, written in 1970 on page 46. And he talks about sun worship or false religion and how it was adopted or absorbed by the Roman Empire it says this Daniel 8:25 says through his policy also shall he cause craft to prosper in his hand and by peace shall destroy many by leagues of friendship and peaceful alliances Rome secured control of the richest provinces of the world now pagan Rome did that but papal Rome also did that uh, dying kings left their kingdoms under the guardianship of Rome. In 133 BC, the III, king of Pergamum, now Pergamum, that was in Asia Minor, that's one of the divisions of Greece, keep that in mind, bequeathed his kingdom to the Roman Senate. Pergamum was one of the four divisions of Alexander's empire and was the world's capital in the religion of sun worship now listen to this the old babylonian system of sun worship had been transferred there in the early days of the persian empire Attalus not only bequeathed his civil powers to rome but the whole babylonian religious system was transferred to the new world power <laughs> now think about that you wonder why in Revelation it says nothing about Rome and everything about Babylon. Because spiritual Babylon never died. You see, it was transferred quite literally and absorbed by the Roman Empire. So, King of the North, it's Rome. Keep your eyes focused on that, folks, because, I mean, it, it's insane just the the... The stuff that's just going on throughout week by week. I mean, I found out this week that somebody, uh, their their daughter uh, got COVID. And everybody at my work are like freaked out about it that, you know, we had to get everybody tested or something. And I, I refused to get tested. I said, I'm, fe I'm feeling fine. Look, I, I, I don't want to be tested, you know. They didn't really fight me on it, so it wasn't a big deal. But I, just this this whole nonsense about COVID. Now, is the is the disease real? Yes. It's it's a legitimate virus. Now, is it as legitimate as they're making it out to be? Absolutely not. Has it has it 
deserved the attention that it's gotten? No. Does it deserve a vaccine? No, absolutely not. And if you study vaccines yourself, I'll tell you this, folks. For me, I don't want to go too far down this rabbit hole because I want to focus on what we're talking about today. But for me, I will never take a vaccine because this is the reason why. In the 1980s, the vaccine companies, with the help of Dr. Fauci, by the way, and Reagan, um, they got political immunity. So in other words, they could bring out a bad product, which could cause horrible disease and destruction, and they could not be sued. Legally, they could not be sued. Now, if you have a product and you're not, you are not able to be held accountable, you do not have my business, period. End of story. So, you know, if, when, when vaccines are held accountable, and this is something everybody overlooks, everybody overlooks, when vaccines, when the vaccine companies can be held accountable and can be sued, then we'll, we'll talk, okay? But until then, we, we have absolutely no discussion. And just the, the insanity of everybody who, who they think, if this virus, according to the narrative, uh, escaped the Wuhan laboratory like a, a, a security level four laboratory or something, we really think this tiny little masks that we're all wearing are going to do anything? It's it's just insane. I feel like I'm I feel like I'm living I feel like I'm a crazy person sometimes when I'm out there. I really do cuz I, I I'm wondering what everyone is thinking like is anyone else thinking hey, I know people think it's gone too far, but people still talk about it like it's a lot more legitimate than it is, okay? And I'm not saying it, people have died from people have died from it, but do we shut down economies and destroy people's lives and their uh, and their businesses because of this? No. A virus has to run its course at the end of the day. It has to run its course. So anyways, enough with that. I wanted to head over to Daniel chapter 7 and verse 25. And this is not the main focus of what we're going to be talking about today. But when we're talking about the lost doctrines of Daniel, this one you just cannot overlook. And in a way, it's saying some of the things that we're going to look at later, it's saying it in a different way. It's the other side of the coin, so to speak. So Daniel chapter 7, verse 25 says this, And he shall speak great words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and think to change times and laws. And they shall be given into his hand until a time times and the dividing of time. Of course, there's a whole lot there that I can't go into right now, but I want to focus on the lost doctrine. Here's the lost doctrine. This power, which if you study this out, this little horn power that is being spoken of here in Daniel chapter 7 is Rome. Again, pagan and papal Rome. First as a beast, then as a little horn power. <clears throat> it thinks to change times and laws. Now, which laws did it change well if you look at the catechism and i have a catechism uh, myself and i've actually presented this before in my sermons and i go and show you the actual page or under their chapter under the decalogue and they will show you it's really quite scary they'll show you this is what it says in exodus on the ten commandments this is what it says in deuteronomy and then it says and this is what we say it's really high-handed 
The second commandment's removed entirely. All right. And they show this is what's scary about it is they show you side by side with the other Ten Commandments from the Bible, from Deuteronomy uh, chapter 5 and Exodus chapter 20. And they show you side by side. Like, just like, yeah, we know it's wrong, but this is how we're doing it. It's not like, it's not a mistake. It's something very intentional. They've removed the second commandment on idolatry completely and graven images. And what do you see in the Roman Catholic Church everywhere? Graven images. And then they change, think to change times and laws. The Sabbath commandment in their commandments is the third commandment because they've removed the second. It's the third commandment, so everything has to kind of move up. And they split the co uh, commandment on covetousness into two. But the Sabbath commandment, the fourth commandment, which if you read in Exodus and in Deuteronomy, makes it very clear that it's the seventh day, right? And you look on your calendar, First day of the week, Sunday, all the way to the end. What's the last day? What's the seventh day of the week? The Sabbath. That's the day that we shall not do work. And God's seal of approval is right there on it. It has his name, his, his title, and his jurisdiction. And he says, I am the creator for the Lord God made the heavens and the earth in six days. So the Sabbath commandment. It was really the, one of the capstones, if not the capstone, of creation was the seventh-day Sabbath. Now, that's been changed by the Roman Catholic Church. Again, high-handedly, if you read it, if you read it from their catechism, it just says, remember the Sabbath day. It doesn't say all the other stuff that Deuteronomy and Exodus uh, say, which clearly identify it as the seventh-day Sabbath. So I want to read... From a Roman Catholic document here on canon and tradition, page 31. This is Rome's challenge. And I've read this a couple times in, in my sermons before. It is not yet too late for Protestants to redeem themselves. Will they do it? Will they indeed take the written word only, the scripture alone as their sole authority and their sole standard? Or will they still hold the indefensible, self-contradictory, and suicidal doctrine and practice of following the authority of the Catholic Church and wear the sign of her authority. Will they keep the Sabbath of the Lord, the seventh day, according to Scripture? Or will they keep the Sunday, according to the tradition of the Catholic Church? Again, that book is Canon and Tradition, page 31. High-handed, intentional, they admit it, they, they know they changed the day, and they're proud of it. But now, I want to get into something else. Let's go one chapter ahead, Daniel chapter 8. And we're going to look at all these verses side by side. Daniel chapter 8, verse 11. It says, Yea, he magnified himself even to the prince of the host, and by him... The daily sacrifice was taken away, and the place of the sanctuary was cast down. So we have two doctrines here that were taken away or destroyed. The first one is the daily, and the second one was the sanctuary. Now, what is the daily? 
well, if you go back to Leviticus, you go back and you read through um, the book of uh, Exodus and some of the chapters there, but especially Leviticus, where it talks about, you know, the, the table of showbread, where they would daily eat bread. They had the burnt offering sacrifice, which was in the morning and the evening. The, the priest would do his priestly duties throughout the day, and he would come in, he would sprinkle the blood, um, put it on the four corners of the altar, depending on the sacrifice. You know, the sacrifice could be different. But the burnt offering was part of the daily. It was, it was a constant. It was there no matter what, whether someone brought a sin offering or not. There would be a burnt offering in the morning and the evening. And then there would be a trimming of the lamps in the morning and the evening. And the fire would be kept burning uh, throughout the night. So this would be done continually, perpetually, as the, the Bible says. And this was something that was done daily. And when you look, I mean, we don't have time necessarily to go there, but I can just kind of give you a, a slight summation of what the daily is. The daily is really related to your day-by-day -day walk with God. And that is you looking to God to be sanctified. You know, you looking to him for sanctification by doing the burnt offering sacrifice. And the burnt offering sacrifice is you uh, being a living sacrifice, literally offering yourself as in New Testament terms, the Apostle Paul says, I die daily, um, offering yourself and consecrating your life to God in the morning. And the evening, and if you if you pay attention when you're reading uh, the Gospels, you'll see that this is something that Jesus did quite often. Probably every day, I would imagine. Probably every day, but I mean, of course, the scriptures, they're only going to give you snippets here and there. But they show you, even in the Gospels, there's times when he went up into the mountain to pray or at night he went somewhere to pray. He did a morning and evening sacrifice. The oil, symbolic of the Holy Spirit, being trimmed in the morning and the evening, the daily bread, reading of the Bible every day, um, that was on the table of showbread, you know, the, the candle, the light being lit, the fire of God, you know, and there's a lot more. There was the altar of incense, which of course is our prayers to God. Now that was taken away by pagan and papal Rome, especially by papal Rome. Pagan Rome literally took it away in the sense of they did away with the services when they destroyed Jerusalem. You know, another way, though, they didn't because Jesus made those sacrifices obsolete, didn't he? When he fulfilled them with his Passover sacrifice of himself. So, just try to stay with me here. I know some, sometimes this stuff's a little complicated. So, in a much deeper spiritual sense papal rome when they took away people's reading of the bible for instance saying that it's a forbidden book and that the people couldn't understand it um <clears throat> when they established their authoritative priesthood where you'd have to go and confess to the priest every day instead of confessing to christ you know taking that uh sense of prayer uh part of the daily away or relying on the holy spirit and sanctification to god now you're relying on the eucharist and the daily mass okay so the daily mass really specifically replaced and supplanted 
the daily sacrifice, which was always supposed to be a spiritual relationship with God. And this has to do everything to do with your devotion. This is when you wake up in the morning and you first, before you do anything, you know, you get on your knees and you beg God to help you overcome. You die daily. That's, that's part of the daily. So that was taken away. Now, the place of the sanctuary was cast down. The entire sanctuary doctrine, which we've just <laughs> highlighted some issues as part of it for the daily, that was taken away also, which means everything that encompasses was taken away. The, the pot of mana, the Ten Commandments that was inside the Ark of the Covenant, the holy place, the most holy place, the Day of Atonement, all those things, the meanings of all those things and the prophetic meanings of those things, they were all taken away. They were cast down. Now, listen to this. Continuing on, Daniel chapter 8, verse 12, it says, And an host was given him against the daily by reason of transgression, and it cast the truth down to the ground, and it practiced and prospered. And I heard one saint speaking, uh, this in verse 13, And another saint said unto that certain saint which spake, How long shall be the vision concerning the daily sacrifice and the transgression of desolation? to give both the sanctuary and the host to be trodden underfoot. So again, how long will it be until there will be a restoration of the daily and a restoration of the sanctuary doctrine? Well, Daniel chapter 8, 14 says, Unto 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. Again, because we're sort of pressed for time, I just want to say 2,300 days begins in the, for the command to restore and build Jerusalem. You can find that in Daniel chapter 9, 457 B.C., well-established date, not a, uh, a very, very well-established date in history. 457 B.C. is when that final decree goes out that establishes the autonomous government of Israel by Artaxerxes. And then 2,300 days, which you take the day year principle, 2,300 years, brings you to 1844. So in 1844, in the year of our Lord, 1844, the daily sacrifice, or the daily, not just the, the sacrifice, but everything that encompasses the daily, and the, the sanctuary doctrine would begin to be restored. Okay, The finishing touches of the Reformation. Now, if you go over to Daniel chapter 11, which I've been studying a lot lately, we're going to find another aspect of this, another lost doctrine. It says, And arms shall stand on his part, and they shall pollute the sanctuary of strength, and shall take away the daily sacrifice, and they shall place the abomination that maketh desolate. Now, the abomination that maketh desolate. According to Jesus in Matthew chapter 24, he said, when you see the abomination, I'm kind of paraphrasing here, but when you see the abomination of desolation that sitteth where it ought not, uh, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, whoso readeth, let him understand, then you flee to the mountains. Now again, I, I paraphrase that a bit. Now, this actually happened in history. So, when did the Christians who are in Jerusalem, flee to the mountains. Because that's the context of what they're talking about there. The question is directly related to Jerusalem. 
But Jesus answers it by answering the questions about Jerusalem and also about the end of the world. Now, in history, we see that when the Romans came in 66 AD, that they, event, they basically just randomly, they, they came and sieged the city, and then they just packed up and just left. That was the signal for the Christians. That was the abomination that maketh desolate for them to get up and leave, because that's what actually happened, and we can see that in history. So there's something about the Roman legions when they came. The first time that they brought the abomination that maketh desolate with them. And keep it in mind in a spiritual sense, Rome brings the abomination of desolation with him. Okay? Because pagan Rome, you know, transfers into papal Rome later. Now, if you study Roman history as we were just looking at from that quote earlier, they brought sun worship with them. They had a sundial, part of their standard. Part of the Roman standard was a sundial. And when they came and sieged around Jerusalem, they stamped that sundial into the ground. They, they basically planted the standard of idolatry in the Holy Land. And I say, okay, well, that's kind of a long shot there. Well, I'll tell you, it's actually in Scripture. You can find this, that the, the land around, in and around Jerusalem was considered by God to be holy land, specifically most holy land also to the Levites. If you go to Ezekiel chapter 45, verses 1 and 2, you'll see it. Moreover, when ye shall divide by lot the land for inheritance, ye shall offer an oblation unto the Lord, and holy portion of the land. So listen, you got a holy portion of the land here. The length shall be the length of five and twenty thousand reeds, and the breadth shall be ten thousand. This shall be holy in all the borders thereof round about. So we have a section of land here in Jerusalem, because in verse 2 it says, Of this there shall be for the sanctuary five hundred in length, five hundred in breadth, square around, and fifty cubits round about for the suburbs thereof. So it talks about the sanctuary. So we know we're talking about Jerusalem here. Okay? There's a holy section of the land. Now, it's it's 5 and 20,000 reeds. So 25,000 reeds, and the breadth was 10,000. If you convert that, it's actually 6.9 miles by 2.8 miles. All right, so when they surrounded Jerusalem, they were well within that territory of being... Uh, within 6.9 miles and 2.8 miles, depending on what side they were on, of the center of the city, or of the entire length of the city, rather. So they were on holy ground, just being outside the city walls. So in, in a way, when Jesus died outside of the city, he was still on holy ground himself. That's an interesting thought. But if you jump over to Ezekiel chapter 48, verse 12, it talks about this again. It says, And this oblation of the land that is offered shall be unto them a thing most holy by the border of the Levites. So it was most holy piece of land. So it was a most holy part, particle parcel of land within Israel itself and part of Jerusalem, 
where God's temple and sanctuary was. And the Romans implanted sun worship in that. That was the abomination that maketh desolate. Okay? And if you read Great Controversy, page 25 and 26, you get a little more information on this. Just a confirmation in plain English here. Jesus declared to the listening disciples the judgments that were to fall upon apostate Israel, and especially the retributive vengeance that would come upon them for their rejection and crucifixion of the Messiah. Unmistakable signs would precede the awful climax. The dreaded hour would come, suddenly and swiftly, and the Savior warned his followers, When ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet stand in the holy place, Whoso readeth, let him understand. Then let them which are in Judea flee into the mountains. Matthew 24, 15 and 16. You can also find this in Luke chapter 21, 20 and 21. When the idolatrous standards of the Romans should be set in the holy ground, which extended some furlongs outside the city walls. Again, that's just another measurement furlongs. Then the followers of Christ or to find safety in flight. When the warning sign should be seen, those who would escape must make no delay. Throughout the land of Judea, as well as in Jerusalem itself, the signal for flight must be immediately obeyed. So, the abomination that makes desolate, and again, we see this, we actually saw this happen in history. So we, we know we're on the right track here, because we saw this happen in history. Ro the Romans came, they sieged Jerusalem, and then they simply packed up and left for apparently no reason. When they left, all the Christians fled the city into the mountains. Well, Rome came back in 70 AD, and they destroyed the sanctuary, they destroyed Jerusalem, but not a single Christian died. But over 1.1 million Jews died. Because when Rome was on the warpath, everybody kept fleeing to Jerusalem. So by the time they sieged it, and people were eating their own kids because the siege was many, many days, it was quite an awful thing that all the Christians were out of the city while all the Jews, which had come from all the parts of the land where the Romans were on the warpath, had crowded into the city. And sadly, as I said, over a million Jews died in that siege. So we're kind of running short on time here. I want to get to our, my last uh, verse, Daniel chapter 12. It says this, And from the time that the daily sacrifice shall be taken away, and the abomination that maketh desolate set up, there shall be two thousand, there shall, or sorry, there shall be a thousand two hundred and ninety days. Now, in the spiritual sense, what is the abomination of desolation? Well, it's it's a sun worship that is set up by Rome. Essentially, that's what it is. Idolatrous standards set up by Rome. What would that translate to spiritually today? Sunday worship. One of God's commandments has been subjugated and a new standard has been set up, if you will, a new sundial in the holy place, actually the most holy place, if, you, if you're thinking spiritual Ark of the Covenant, 
and you're going in, entering into the most holy place and then changing that law that's inside that holy ark, that's most holy. So you have the abomination of desolation in today's terms would be Sunday worship. Once it's enforced on a global scale. Now, it's talking about this same power and it says there shall be 1,290 days. So 1,290 days, 1,290 years. If you start from 508 AD, when King Clovis had thoroughly established the Roman Catholic Church power, which is when this is referring to, and you add to that are 1,290 days, you get to 1798. In 1798, that's when Napoleon's General Berthier took the Pope out of his power, took his papal states away from him, and he died in exile. But now the verse doesn't leave you there. Daniel chapter 12 and verse 12 says this, Blessed is he that waiteth and cometh to the thousand three hundred and five and thirty days. So again, you start that same time period, 508, and you add up the time, you get to 1843. So in 1843 and 1844, you would have a beginning of the restoration of the lost doctrines of Daniel. So if you are, folks, if you are interested in finding the true church of God, this will be their, these will be their messages. First off, they won't be shy about who the Antichrist is, what Rome is doing in the world today. That is, that used to be such a common uh, message in the Protestant world and doctrinally speaking however that's been lost also but that's not the lost doctrines that Daniel's speaking of so God's last day lost doctrines restored you'll see if you're looking for a church whether it's a home church or an institution or whatever I doubt it's gonna be an institution institutions are untrustworthy but you're going to find the, these doctrines. You're going to find the seventh-day Sabbath and or all of God's commandments that are binding. You're going to see people that keep all the commandments. You're going to see an understanding of the sanctuary and the spiritual understanding of the sacrifices and what Christ is doing in the most holy place right now because all those priestly duties pointed to his high priestly duty. Third, the abomination that maketh desolate. Literally speaking, with pagan Rome, it was sun worship in their sundial in the most holy place, which was the land of Jerusalem, the land surrounding Jerusalem. Spiritually speaking, this is Sunday worship enforced by Rome. So, very, very interesting. We covered a lot today. And I pray that this was a blessing to you. It's it's been a, it's been an interesting study as I've studied the King of the North, the King of the South, and just how all these things tie together. And it's really strengthened my faith, folks, to see Daniel chapter twelve and Daniel chapter eight directly referencing 1843 and 1844. Because then you have to go there, and you got to say what happened in 1843 and 1844. Well, there was 
there was a great movement that happened, and that was the Advent movement. They give when you when you study these things out for yourself, you really gain a surety, an intellectual faith, and understanding of where you should be. So I pray that this helped clear up maybe some uh, some foggy areas in in Daniel. Of course, we had to just do basically broad strokes here, but but I'll catch you guys next time. And God bless. I've been Cody Moore, and you've been listening to Truth Triumphant Radio.